The top song on the radio was Too Close by Next. The number one movie in theaters that weekend was Godzilla starring Matthew Broderick, Jean Renault, and Hank Azaria. And Patricia had just graduated from junior high school. Today, we are going way back to May 27th, 1998. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Wayback Recap, a podcast that obsessively explores all things past, from our favorite TV and film to Go-Gurt, the ultimate yogurt on the Go released in 1998. Fucking (laughs) Go-Gurt. Fucking (laughs) Go-Gurt. I'm Brandon. And I'm Patricia. And today's episode is going to be a little different. Instead of talking about a movie or a TV show that we loved growing up, we're talking about a person we loved. Comedian and actor Phil Hartman. Yes, I love Phil Hartman. Love Phil Hartman. Ever since Peacock came into my life, (laughs) um, outside of podcast viewing homework, I've just been basically watching nothing but Dateline for the last three weeks. Nice. I you do. Every time I talk to you, you're like, oh, I'm watching Dateline. I'm watching Dateline. Oh no, I'm watching Dateline. Oh, it's just Dateline. I've got Dateline. <laughs> it's a huge problem. But so for this episode, I'm gonna do my best Lester Holt. Nice. And we're gonna talk about the murder of Phil Hartman. I should tell you, as Tracy Morgan once told Liz Lemon, don't do impressions of other braces. Oh, I am not doing an impression. Oh, okay. okay. I'm just channeling his essence. Okay. All right. Uh, but that's good advice <laughs> from Tracy. <laughs> it actually may have been uh, Angie, but either same one. Advice. It's yeah. good advice, period. In the early morning hours of May 28th, 1998, while sleeping in his bed, Phil Hartman was shot in the head, neck, and chest by his wife, Bryn Hartman. After which, she drove to her friend's house and confessed the murder. They went back to Hartman's house, where Bryn called two more people and confessed to the crime two more times. Eventually, the police were called while the police were removing the children from the residents who had been there the whole time. What? While removing the children, Bryn went back to the bedroom, locked the door, took the gun she had used to kill Phil, and killed herself. Wow. It's a heartbreaking story. Those poor kids. (laughs) The kids were little, so I think that helps, but is also equally tragic. Um, And as we'll get into it, this isn't the first time the children were removed because of a fight between Phil and Bryn, but we'll Man. get to it. So we're talking about Phil Hartman. To talk about him, we should go back to the beginning, right? Yeah. So Philip Edward Hartman was born on September 24th, 1948. He's a Libra. Wow. Obviously. Very near my birthday. Yeah. Uh, in Bradford, Ontario. And kind of like reversed order, 4884. Oh! Good numbers. I don't know. I just you. No, I'm just (laughs) stoned and dumb. Listen, anything to feed the narrative that Phil Hartman and I have a secret connection (laughs) made by the universe. (laughs) Uh, So Phil was one of eight children. Wow. He was the fourth, right in the middle. Hey, I'm. I'm also right in the middle. Yeah. Just saying. Parallels. Uh, his parents were Doris and Rupert Hartman. Doris and Rupert are Our, adorable parent names. Those really are. Uh, but you know, as we as we both know as middle children, Hartman uh, found it hard to get attention. You know, there's a lot of kids. Man, true. <laughs> as he grew up, like kind of being the class clown, he would say that the attention he didn't get from his family, he found in other places. Yeah. Like, 
he was going to seek that attention out. Yeah, I mean, I feel him. very relatable in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, when I think of Phil Hartman, I see him as, like, a middle-aged man, right? Yeah. So while researching this, it was fun to look at, like, childhood pictures, teenage pictures. He's one of those people who looks the same no matter what. I picture his voice <laughs> being the same since he's been a child, me like a too. baby. That deep voice, me too. It probably wasn't true, but that's how I picture it in my brain. I hope it is. While researching this, it was fun to learn that in high school, all Phil Hartman wanted to do was smoke weed and surf. Man, <laughs> minus the surfing thing. He's, Relatable. He's, it's the 60s Southern, Cal- Southern California. Yeah. Like, he had, he wasn't interested in school or college, like... He was interested in catching waves. <laughs> catching waves. Like, what's up, Phil? I support you in this. The ocean is scary to me, but if you love it, I love it. So after high school, he did do a year at Santa Monica City College, but he dropped out in 1969 when his brother offered him a job as a roadie to a rock band that his brother was managing. So his brother would have a, would go on to have like a long career of managing uh, rock bands. Really? Cool. I'm assuming this is the older brother? Yes. I think this is his older brother, Paul. But there's a million brothers, so it's hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) Something about Phil, though, is that he got bored of things quickly. So even while touring with a rock, like, think about it. It's 1971. Like, it's 1970. Or 1969. You're on tour with people like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. Like, the quote-unquote, these are rock stars. And imagine being like, I'm bored. <laughs> but <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> yeah. Man, I could I could see how it would be though. Yeah. So in 1972, uh Phil quit and went back to school. Uh this time he went to California State University in Northridge where he studied graphic arts. Nice. So he started his own graphic design business. While doing that, he created more than 40 album covers. Wow. So bands like Poco, America, he created the lo- the logo for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So these are not exactly my kind of music, but these are huge acts in the yeah. 70s. Like, just imagine being, like, in a record. I'm like, oh, Phil's going to stop by with the graphic art, and it's Phil fucking Hartman? That is amazing. Isn't that wild? Phil Hartman, man of many, many talents. Literally. I'm quite impressed. So I watched, there's, of course, a million specials about this because it's a sad case. So in these specials, a person who is almost always interviewed is Chris Connolly, who worked for MTV for a long, long time, worked for Rolling Stone, ESPN. He knew Phil really well. And in one special I watched, Chris was like, Phil Hartman lived the 1970s dream. You're just kicking it with rock stars. You live in LA. You're smoking pot. You're doing it. Doing the (laughs) thing. Like Chris was like, Phil had the ideal life and he hated it. Like, Phil was never one to settle. Yeah. Like, he was always looking for the next thing. Get it, Phil, man. That's ambition or (laughs) other things. While working as a graphic artist, it was just him. He didn't have, like, a big company. He just, he was a solo act. And while he would spend time alone, he would entertain himself uh, doing, like, impressions. And in 1975... He was seeking like a more social outlet for his talents. He's one of those extroverted introverts. Do you know what I mean? Where he's like, I love it. Don't. I love it. Don't. Like, don't look at me, but don't stop looking at me. (laughs) I promise not every episode I'm going to say relatable. That reminds me of me or something like that. But relatable. Yeah. He started to attend evening comedy classes run by the California-based improvisational comedy group, The Groundlings. Wow. 
we could do a whole episode about the groundlings. But if you were a comedian on the West Coast, that was your goal, was yeah. to get on stage at the groundlings. Famous alumni include Melissa McCarthy, Will Forte, Lisa Kudrow, Phil Lamar, and that isn't even mentioning SNL alums like Maya Rudolph, Sherry O'Terry, Jesus. Will Ferrell, John Lovitz, Kristen Wiggs, Janix, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. So the Groundlings was kind of like the place to be. But we also have to remember, up until this point, Phil Hartman has not so much as taken an acting class. What? He has no, he didn't do school plays. He wasn't part of any troops. He didn't do comedy stuff in high school or college. That is wild. And he had just to been me. touring. He just knew that he could do impressions because he would like do impressions to himself or like to his friends. That is. So this kid goes to a Groundlings class and gets up on stage and is like, I got a joke. And he kills. Like he does a great job, brings down the house. After several years of training with the Groundlings, paying his way by redesigning the group's logo and merchandise, <laughs> always smart, got that graphic design in his pocket. <laughs> Hartman formally joined the cast of the Groundlings, and by 1979, he had become one of the show's stars. Wow. Um, also in the late 70s, so a fine tradition at the Groundlings was that all the male comedians who came through that show would inevitably end up on the dating game. <laughs> and the same is true for Phil Hartman, who was on the dating game and won a date, but he was stood up. The bachelorette who picked him never showed for their date. That's wild. I know, it's sad. But like, uh, Steve Martin was on there, was uh, yeah, on the I've dating game. Like, tons, tons of people went through the date, went on the dating game. At the Groundlings, Phil Hartman befriended Paul Rubens often collaborating and writing comedic material together. Together, they created the character Pee Wee Herman. That is wild. Okay, I thought, I thought that's where that was going. That is... And developed the Pee Wee Herman show, which premiered on HBO in 1981. Hartman played Captain Carl on the Pee Wee Herman he show. He did? Oh my gosh. And returned to, and returned to the role for when the Pee Wee's Playhouse became a TV show. He did? Okay, so... Oh my gosh. <laughs> That just Wild. unlocked the memory to me. Right? Because I used to watch the Pee-Wee's Playhouse like TV. Me too. It had the toys. Oh, yeah. It's on the episode list coming up. Oh, we'll, my gosh, We'll get dude. to it because okay, we have things to say about it. Phil would also co-write the script for the 1985 feature film, Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, and had a cameo in the film. Although he had considered quitting acting at the age of 36 due to limited opportunities, the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure brought new possibilities and kind of changed Phil's mind. Yeah, I was going to say, that was a huge movie. Huge move, yeah. In 1985, Paul Paul Rubens took Phil to New York with him when Paul slash Pee-wee was hosting Saturday Night Live. And that's where Phil Hartman met Lorne Michaels. Wow, serendipitous. Wild, right? I had no idea about this Pee-wee Herman show. Me either. This is brand new information to me. I'm just... <laughs> Blew my mind. Wait for it. So later that year... Hartman and Rubens would have a falling out. Oh, man. I hope that doesn't happen to us. I'm definitely <laughs> Pee Wee Herman in this situation. Uh, so after the falling out, Phil was no longer involved in Pee Wee's Playhouse. Now, after you tell me someone has a falling out, I'm a nosy bitch. <laughs> so I am like, I'm internet digging right away about what the fuck happened. Like, who hit who? I'm dying. So I did find an article where Paul Rubens spoke about his relationship with Phil Hartman and how it ended. Rubens said, quote, Phil always loved Pee Wee Herman, but he used to give me a hard time about focusing on this instead of all my other characters. I liked the idea of becoming Pee Wee 
and letting the public think Pee Wee was a real person. Phil was frustrated by that. He thought that I was mm-hmm, squandering my talent, end quote. Wow. That's a very interesting fight to have. Yeah. That's a very interesting fight to have. Where I think it probably wasn't even a fight for Phil Hartman. But as we'll see, Phil kind of runs hot or cold. You're in or you're out. And I think he probably just decided that that was the end of his relationship with Paul Rubens. Like, we have this difference of opinion, so we don't have to do anything. Like, that's the end. May I ask a question? Like, just what I'm hearing, and granted, like, when all this happened with Phil Hartman, I was a kid, so I don't really really remember a lot, and I haven't really looked up on it since it happened. Sure. Did Phil Hartman have, like, um, a history of, like, mental illness or anything like that? No. Okay. Let's put a pin in that. Okay. I am really seeing a lot of similarities in Phil Hartman and myself. Not, I not have also had this talent wise. No, of not course, at that's all. That's not what we're talking but about. But just like a yeah. lot of like personality and just kind of like. Wait, same. Like not to overuse the phrase, but especially as we get into like more personal things about Phil Hartman, I see a lot of myself in Phil He's Hartman. He's a Libra. He's a Libra. <laughs> He's a fucking Libra. So this falling out with Paul Rubens, it provides some insight into how Phil Hartman looked at the world. While some were happy to focus on one thing, develop that one thing, and grow it, Phil didn't have much interest in that. He was always looking for the next thing. So at the same time, he's still with the Groundlings. He's working with Pee Wee. He's also getting roles in some movies. He's in Jumpin' Jack Flash. He's in Three Amigos. They're small parts, but he's getting getting parts. Yeah, those are memorable movies. Like Jumpin' Jack Flash, Three Amigos, I remember watching. Yep. Uh, He also was starting to work as a voice actor in animated TV shows like The Smurfs, Challenge of the Go-Bots, The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, and Dennis the Menace. Okay, so, whoa. I watched (laughs) all those. Yeah. I want to know, I'm going to research the Smurfs episodes he's in because I really want to watch that because I have Boomerang, so we're going to listen. Heck yes. Yeah, dude. And then I also really want to know the episode of 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo because I have Boomerang and I'm going to watch that because I love 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. Do it, do it, do it. So he was developing, he was, so this, his voice work is starting to really move. He's also doing voiceovers for advertisements. So this is also good money, good money, good money. Yeah. So despite the fact that he was working, Phil was still struggling in Hollywood. Quote, as an actor, I felt like I couldn't compete. I wasn't cute enough to be a leading man. And I wasn't as brilliant as comedian Robin Williams, people like that. The one thing I could do was voices and impersonations, weird characters, but there really wasn't any call for that except on Saturday Night Live. Uh, yeah. Hartman successfully auditioned to join Saturday Night Live in its 12th season, which began on October 11th, 1986. He had been recommended for the show by fellow Groundlings and SNL cast members John Lovitz and Lorraine Newman, as well as Jumpin' Jack Flash director Penny Marshall. Penny Marshall vouch. Shut I mean, that's, up, a Penny. Good, that's a good vouch. Thank you, Penny. And this is just a tiny, he didn't have like a big part in Jumpin' Jack Flash. No. So he made enough of an impact on director Penny Marshall for her then to go, Lorne, have you met Phil Hartman? So that's a big deal. Like he made an impact. Now, by season 12, Saturday Night Live was in the shitter. <laughs> I was about to say, I think I do remember like that era being very yeah. frowned upon. Yeah. So Lorne Michaels had to beg NBC not to cancel the show. And it's rumored that he fired most of the season 11 cast as part of that agreement. Wow. So out went Joan Cusack and Robert Downey Jr. 
Wow, I yeah. forgot they were on there. <laughs> and in came Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, Nora Dunn, Jan Hooks, and Victoria Jackson to join the only two people of season 11 that survived, John Lovitz and Dennis Miller. Wow. John Lovitz. Love him. Love John Lovitz. Also, I wish we could, if we ever talk about Saturday Night Live again on the show, we're only going to talk about the women of Saturday Night Live. Oh, absolutely. Because Jan Hooks, Nora Dunn, Victoria Jackson are funny, funny women, and they kill it on Saturday Night Live. Victoria Jackson is a very controversial figure. Yes, she is. Okay, I just want, I didn't know if you I, knew. On the show, she's okay. very funny. Yes. That's all I wanted to say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm mostly here to gush about Jan Hooks. I was about to say Jan Hooks. is just so good. Doesn't she play Jenna Maroney's mom on 30 Rock? <laughs> and also designing women. Yeah, so she was really close to Phil Hartman. She had met Phil Hartman in 1974 doing growling stuff. Wow. So by the time they were together on Saturday Night Live, she had known Phil 10 years. That's awesome. People would call, by people, I mean Phil Hartman's future wives, would call Jan Hooks Phil's actual wife. <laughs> like, that he that he leaned on Jan Hooks more than he ever leaned on any of his wives. Like the, That's very interesting. They had a very deep, they had a really good relationship. Long relationship. That is very interesting. Jan Hooks, I love you. Phil told the Los Angeles Times, quote, I wanted to do SNL because I wanted to get the exposure that would give me box office credibility so I can write movies for myself, end quote. So remember, like, that was kind of Phil's end game. Yeah. Like, Phil wanted to write movies that he could be in. Like what Mike Myers was able to do for himself. He created these characters Fellow and then he created actor, huge yeah. fan franchises. And I think that was kind of like what Phil wanted. Yeah. That's where he saw his future going. In his eight seasons with Saturday Night Live, Hartman became known for his impressions and performed over 70 different characters. That's wild. Hartman's original Saturday Night Live characters include Eugene, the anal retentive chef, and unfrozen caveman lawyer, my personal favorite. Yeah. <laughs> his impressions include Frank Sinatra, Ronald Reagan, Ed McMahon, Barbara Bush, Charlton Heston, Phil Donahue, and Bill Clinton. All very important figures at that period of time, huge, I feel like, right? Huge. Bill Hartman would say that he owed most of his career to Bill Clinton. <laughs> because with that election, Phil's impression of Bill Clinton made Phil a household name. Agreed. I feel like that's when I was, I remember a Phil Hartman, Bill Clinton impersonation. I didn't even really watch SNL. Hartman first performed his Clinton impression on an episode of The Tonight Show. When he met Bill Clinton in 1993, Hartman remarked, I guess I owe you a few apologies. <laughs> <laughs> but Clinton had good humor about it and sent Hartman a signed photo that said, quote, you're not the president, but you play one on TV. And you're okay, mostly. Phil's <laughs> 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 most popular sketch on Saturday Night Live is him as Clinton, where the president visits McDonald's and explains his economic policies in a metaphor while eating the other customer's food. In the dress rehearsal, they told Phil that he wasn't eating enough of the food. So by the end, in the live performance... Hartman eats so much that he's spitting food out, basically, and has to pause the sketch <laughs> in order to in order to swallow the food. Uh, Roy Snyder is with him, and he does a great job of like covertly helping Phil not throw up the McDonald's <laughs> that he's stuffing into his face. It is a classic episode. I just remember like Phil Hartman walking around with that big old booty and he stomach. had like yeah. a stuffed butt, and it's so <laughs> ridiculous. 
like it's an excellent it's a funny skit uh and it's a great impression and it's kind of what i do when i go to mcdonald's you gonna eat that <laughs> and i have them pickles i also know that growing up the impressions i that phil hartman did of people are the things i think of when i think of those people oh absolutely yeah like nowadays when i think of frank sinatra i think of phil hartman doing frank sinatra that's wild it's yeah it's just all there is to it at saturday night live Hartman's nickname was the glue because he held he held the cast together. His frequent on on screen collaborator Jan Hooks is the person who gave him that nickname, which I love. But also, I mean, Farley, Adam Sandler, all kinds of people who were on Saturday Night Live yeah. with Phil are without Phil, there wasn't a show. Like, yeah, I can was, see how he would he be was like the hugely sh- important. Man, that's a very epic cast because those people are all like big names. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. wow. So he helped uh, Jan Hooks, who had terrible stage fright, which this show has talked about before, and I, my heart goes out to people who have stage fright. It's the worst. Uh, Lauren Michaels explained that he, quote, Phil held the show together. He gave to everybody and demanded very little. Michaels would also go on the record to say that Hartman was the least appreciated cast member by commentators of the show. Interesting. Yeah, and he said, you know... Phil could be in five or six or seven skits and wouldn't complain, would be on top of it, would know all his lines, would know all his cues. But he was just a pro. And that's what a lot of people said about Phil Hartman was that Phil came to set funny, on time, and ready to work. Man. And so when we consider that when he got SNL, he had never been on TV before. He had never seen a script before. And then he's going and doing live TV. Like, that's a pro. Snaps for Phil. Truly and honestly, like, that's, <laughs> that's quite impressive. So he was also uh, one of the main writers for the show. Phil would go on to win a primetime Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Variety, Music, or Comedy Program in 1989, sharing the award with the other show's writers. He would be nominated in the same category in 1987 and individually in 1994. So we're going to come back to Jan because I love Jan. And I, I do think Jan Hooks knew Phil Hartman in a way that very few people knew him. Yeah, absolutely. Because he, did, he was a bit of a guarded person. She would say, quote, Phil never had an ounce of competition. He was a team player. It was a privilege for him to come to work, to support, to play. Like, he didn't have to be the star. He never insinuated or he was never mad at the size of the role. He was just happy to be there. Man, that's a really good, like, in an environment like SNL, where I'm sure, like, personalities clash. Oh, my gosh, and everybody wants to be the star. Film critic Pauline Kael declared that, quote, Phil Hartman and Jan Hooks on Saturday Night Live are the two best comedic actors I've ever seen, end quote. And I support that. They were so funny. It was such a good time at Saturday Night Live. But by 1993, almost every cast member who had come up with Hartman had left the show including Jan Hooks, Dana Carvey, and John Lovitz. Man, I love all three of those folks. Yeah, and it's always hard when, like... Yeah, especially, like, your close friends are gone. Yeah. And the new kids coming up were people like Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, much more physical, dare I say it, juvenile senses of humor over (laughs) Phil Hartman. Yeah. So he kind of felt out of place. He was like, I'm too old. I don't really do these. Like, we weren't doing impressions anymore. Okay, yeah. Like, he I had his that. Bill Clinton impression, of course. But other, it was more like original character yeah. sketches on the show. 
and Phil had less of those. I see that. I see that. Phil had originally planned to leave the show in 1991, but Lauren Michaels convinced him to stay in order to further raise his profile. Uh, and then, definitely once Bill Clinton was on the map, he was like, oh, this it, Clinton impression, it's going to get you everywhere. Like, stay with the show, stay with the show, stay with the show. When Jay Leno took over The Tonight Show, he asked Phil Hartman to be his second, to like the, to be the Ed McMahon. Really? Wow. Yeah. I think that Jay Leno and Phil had also worked together at the Groundlings. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought it was just like a random <laughs> pairing. Uh, but he turned him down to stay on SNL again because at this point, NBC had promised Phil Hartman his own comedy variety show called The Phil Show. Interesting. Yeah. Phil had planned to kind of reinvent the variety form with a hybrid of like fast paced comedy, but also impersonations, pet acts, performers, high energy stuff. Nice. Very, very, uh, I would have watched that. I also would have watched that. Before production began, however, the network decided that variety shows were not the poppin' thing anymore and canceled the series. Wow. Way to pull it. Pull the rug out from under me, man. Plus, man, I gave you two more seasons yeah, that's when fun. I didn't want to be on the show anymore because you promised me a show, and now we're all done, and you're saying you're not giving me a show? That's messed, messed up. up. I mean, that's Hollywood for you. Messed up. In a 1996 interview, Hartman said he, quote, was glad that the show didn't work out. He would have been sweating blood every week trying to make it work, end quote. And I feel him on that. Like, it would have been very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine, like, because you have to have choreography, all the kinds of rehearsals. Oh, who's going to find that? You're going to have to have talent scouts. Who's going to find the talent? Like, it's going to be. And when you're executive producer star of a show, that's a lot of work. I can see that, yeah. In 1995, Harvin became one of the stars of the NBC sitcom News Radio, portraying radio news anchor Bill McNeil. He signed up after being attracted to the show's writing and use of an ensemble cast and joked that he based the character Bill McNeil on himself, except he removed any ethics or character. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I never really watched news radio. I know of it. I think I would probably actually like it, but I never watched it when it was live. Yeah, it turns out we were not alone. Uh, (laughs) Even though the show was critically acclaimed, it never brought in the ratings. That sucks. The cast always felt like the show was on the brink of cancellation. After the completing the fourth season of the fourth season of the show, Hartman commented, "Quote unquote, we have a limited appeal." <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Hartman had also publicly stated his frustration over NBC's decision to repeatedly move news radio into different time slots on different nights. Yeah, that's a kiss of death. It like, is it's never going to help, help you. your show. Yeah. Hey, people don't know when to watch us. So how could they watch it? And like you're setting before, a show up to fail. This is before DVR and all that stuff, right? Eight million percent. You had to catch a show when it was on. I mean, and if I you guess, didn't know when it was on, how could you find it? Can you program? I mean, I couldn't program a VCR at that point to get it on a certain day. Also not me. Although the show was renewed for a fifth season, Hartman died before production began. That's right. Oh my gosh. Ken Tucker pr- praised Hartman's performance as McNeil, saying a lesser performer would have played him as a variation of the Mary Tyler Moore show's Ted Baxter, because that's what Bill McNeil was on paper. But Hartman gave infinite variety to Bill's self-centeredness turning him devious, cowardly, squeamish, and foolishly bold from week to week. 
Phil was posthumously nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series in 1998 for his work on news radio, but lost to David Hyde Pierce. Fuck that. <laughs> I mean, we... I am not here to comment on David Hyde Pierce's worth. No, no. But you're telling me this man is shot down at the peak of his career and we nominate him for an Emmy and we give it to David Hyde Pierce. Yeah. It's That's messed super up. weird. Like why even nominate him right. if that was the point? Right. I mean, granted, I, I feel like he'll Phil Hartman deserves it. 100%. It just hurts my feelings. All the shit he's ever done <laughs> made us all smile. Speaking of ways he made me smile. All during this time, Phil Hartman was also working for The Simpsons. Yes, yes, he was. <laughs> and I mean working for the fucking Where Simpsons. Where he provided voices for numerous characters, appearing in 52 episodes. Wow, I didn't realize it that many. Uh-huh. He made his first appearance in the second season episode, Bart Gets Hit by a Car. Great episode. <laughs> uh, he, as ambulance-chasing lawyer, Lionel Hutz. Lionel Hutz. I love Lionel. Although this was a one-time appearance, the writers loved Phil. And Phil loved this because it was an easy paycheck. You come in, half an hour, zip, zap, zop. You go home, you get paid. Phil Hartman, right, though, Living the dream, Phil. Yeah. Have some fun. Phil would go on to voice other reoccurring characters, such as Troy McClure. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. I. <laughs> you might recognize me from such programs as a lemon does what? <laughs> <laughs> I love I love Troy McClure. Uh, Phil would also also play Duff Man. Oh my gosh, he <laughs> did do Duff Man. As well as other background characters and guests. My actual favorite Phil Hartman voice on The Simpsons is that of Lyle Lanley, monorail salesman. Oh my gosh. In the episode classic. Marge versus the monorail in season four. Classic One of my episode. favorite episodes. The song alone... Phil Hartman should got an Emmy. It's <laughs> fucking great. And it, no justice in this world. However, Phil's favorite character was definitely Troy McClure. Yeah. Troy McClure is just fucking genius. On the show, Troy McClure is a washed up actor local to Springfield. And this is the voice that Phil would use to entertain audiences between takes on news radio. <laughs> he remarked, my favorite fans are Troy McClure fans. <laughs> Hartman was very popular with the staff at The Simpsons. Showrunners Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein said they enjoyed his work and would use them whenever they could. They even wrote a whole episode for Phil. Oh my gosh, I forgot about the episode, yes. A Fish Called Selma, which focuses solely on Troy McClure's backstory. It's an excellent episode. Simpsons creator Matt Groening said, all the while, they kind of took Phil for granted because he was just great. Like, he showed up and the, he nailed the joke every time. Yeah, consistent, my dude. Consistent. And that he, the voices he could pull were funny. Like, just doing the voice made you laugh. Yeah, Troy McClure, just like hearing that. The second I hear it, I have a smile on my face right away. Before his death, Phil wanted to make a live action film about Troy McClure. And the Simpsons staff were on board. They were like, let's make this happen. They were ready to help, write, whatever. Hartman had even was even in the process of purchasing the rights. Like, a Troy McClure movie was coming. And that's wow. so sad. It's so sad. I never knew that. That is wild. I'm assuming he was just going to play Troy McClure as yeah. himself. Yeah. It was just going to be Troy McClure, Phil Hartman as Troy McClure, because he is. It would have been great. Phil Hartman's first starring role came in 1995's House guest. Yes, one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm 
I put that on everything. I love that movie. Uh, of, co- of course, it's co-star, legendary Sinbad. Sinbad, my dude. We, are uh. gonna, we can't even talk about house guests too much today because we will definitely do a whole house guest episode because we fucking love house guests. I used to watch house guests on fucking HBO all the time. All the time. All the time. Huge Sinbad fan, huge Phil Hartman fan. Ditto. Like I will Ditto. It'll always be a great support. episode. I can't wait. I can't get excited for our house guest episode. It's coming. He was also in other movies like Greedy, Coneheads, Sergeant Bilko, So I Married an Axe Murderer, Jingle All the Way. Jingle All the Way is another great one. <laughs> uh, Kiki's Delivery Service and his last film, Small Soldiers, which was released after his, which was released Oh my gosh, that's right. Yeah. I love Salt. I saw Small Soldiers in theaters. I, I do too. Well, Phil had started his career with the goal of being a movie star. He had learned that he actually preferred working on TV. He was on other TV shows like the John Larroquette show, the Dana Carvey show, Third Rock from the Sun. Also, Phil was making a considerable amount of money from television advertising. He made $300,000 for four commercials about Slice. He also made commercials for McDonald's and 1-800-COLLECT. I feel like I remember those. Yes. I, I'm sure if we Googled them, I would know them. Phil but his was voice so is sweet. butter, man. He's got a great voice and he can do all kinds of different things. I wish for Phil that he had gotten into voice work sooner because I do think that would have derailed his whole, like, I feel like he would have become a much bigger deal if he had gotten into voice work earlier. Do you, do you know in your research, can Phil Hartman sing? Was he like a trained singer? He is not a trained singer, but he can sing very well and with delight. Like, he loves it. Wow. So I don't think, he's not putting out a pop album. But in character, he because he did that Monorail song. Oh, that's true. Yes, yes, yes. And he was great. He had a really nice voice. He he sang on SNL all the time. Yeah. Uh, He could sing in character. So, like, while doing an impression of Ronald Reagan or Ed McMahon, he could sing it. Like, he was a talent man. Phil Hartman also wrote a number of screenplays that were never produced. In 1986, he wrote a screenplay called Mr. Fix-It that he completed in 1991. He got Robert Zemeckis involved. They had a director. Uh, Phil called it sort of a merger between horror and comedy, like Beetlejuice or Throw Mama from the Train. And I'm like, Phil, you had me a hello. Like, I'll watch this. (laughs) Comedy horror is my favorite. Yeah, truly, honestly, it's a genre that I love very much. But they could never secure studio backing and the project collapsed. Another film idea Hartman had was based on his Groundlings character, Chick Hazard, a private eye. But that also got crushed pretty quickly. In contrast to his real-life personality, which was like a regular low-key guy, Hartman always played seedy, vain, unpleasant characters. Yeah, he does it well and says a lot about his character because he's like, (laughs) I feel like a really nice person, but he played those characters he gave him so much death and just like yeah because those were the characters he liked villains get the most screen time and they're usually funny we like to laugh at the villain yes the villain is the easiest role and phil saw that and you and like was like no problem i can do that easy and he could he killed it those like that troy mcclure that swarmy guy (laughs) phil's great at that and he really leaned in later in his career he would say, throughout my career, I've never been a huge star, but I've made steady progress, and that's the way I like it. Coming in second or third lead, if the movie bombs, not your problem. You aren't to blame. 
Yeah, true. I'm with Phil on this. Safe like, position, man. Smartest, this guy's the smartest guy. Ken Tucker summarized Hartman's comedic style as this. He could momentarily fool the audience into thinking he was the straight man. But then he'd cock an eyebrow and would do something special with his voice when he delivered a punchline. And you never saw it coming. He snuck it in. And you were laughing before the joke was over. Hartman claimed he borrowed his style from Bill Murray. Quote, he's been a great influence on me. When he did that swarmy thing in Ghostbusters, and then that same sort of thing in Groundhog Day, I was like, that's me. That's what I'm going to do. Interesting. He says he tried to imitate it, but he couldn't. He says he wasn't good enough. But in doing that, he discovered this element of something else. This other thing he could do to kind of... This other thing that he could make his own. That could be his style. That is interesting. If we're looking at swarmy Bill Murray and swarmy Phil Hartman, I'd take swarmy Phil Hartman every time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like as a character in real life. Yeah, I feel like sometimes Bill Murray, especially in like the 80s, Bill Murray would lean mean. Like I didn't I wouldn't want to be in a room with him being mean <laughs> to me. But I have no problem being in a room with Troy McClure. Like that doesn't threaten me at all. Uh, but it's interesting to see the parallels there. And like that. That's how Phil Hartman saw himself. So I think that's interesting. Sidebar, I'm upset you didn't bring up this credit for Phil Hartman. He was in the movie Page Master with Macaulay Culkin. He was in a lot of things. Yeah, dude. It's so wild. I'm just looking at his uh, <laughs> CV4, which is a classic mm-hmm. loaded weapon. Yes. Also I'm sorry. great. Okay. Uh, the Brave Little Toaster. Oh, yeah. Uncredited, right? Yes. He did a ton of voice work. That's what I'm saying. Like, I wish he had started doing voice work in the, like, in 81, I wish he had started doing voice work. Because I feel like he would have been in everything. Phil's personal life reflected his professional life. He'd meet a person, fall in love overnight. It would consume his whole existence. But after a while, he would get bored and would disengage. This is the story of Phil's first two marriages. He met married and divorced his first wife Gretchen in just under two years between 1970 and 1972. How old would he have been right there? Those about like these are like early, early 20s. Yeah, yeah early this 20s. is like this is okay. a young young man. A lot of people get married young and are kind of like, well, that was not what I wanted, which is okay. But we see a similar situation 10 years later with his second wife, Lisa Strain. When describing her relationship with Phil, Lisa would say, when he loved you, he loved you with his whole self. But that would be fleeting. He would emotionally disappear, be in his own world. She even said that that passivity made you crazy. Man, I can only imagine being in a relationship with someone like that. And vice versa. It's very difficult. Especially someone who's so nice. Yeah. Like, he was never cruel. He was never belittling to his partners. He was never hurtful. But he would just take himself away. And that's so sad. Like, you can't do anything. Yeah. Lisa told a story in one of the uh, specials I watched about how they went away for their one-year anniversary. They got, like, a hotel in Santa Barbara. And she had got, like, sexy lingerie. (laughs) And she got all dressed up. And when they went to bed, she came out and Phil said, could you not? And went to bed. Turn the light off. Wow. God. That's icy. Yeah. That, your one year anniversary. Could you? Oh my God. Could you not? Like, ouch. That yeah. is a hot, like, and it's not 
Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying though? Like it's not aggressive. I mean, it's he's not belittling. He's just not interested. Yeah, that's real. I mean, I see both sides of that, but it is rough to just be like on the receiving end of that on your anniversary. It's just. It's rough. Yeah. And you know, when we talked about mental health earlier, there is something there when a person, you throw yourself into something a hundred percent. And then you, once you get it, it's no longer exciting. I yeah. mean, that's the human condition, really, right? Truly and honestly, it is. I don't want to, like, I'm not going to be an armchair psychologist. And I don't know anything diagnose, about anything. But I just see a lot of similarities in, like, my journey with mental health and Phil Hartman. Um, and I'm just wondering if there's, like, similarities there. But and we have to, we're looking at this with 2021 eyes. Truly. And we have, to, we as a society have come very far in the conversation about mental health. Yeah. And I do wonder if in 2021, if Phil Hartman was here today, if he would have something to say about that. Because yeah. I think he would. There's definitely something there. We're about to get into the nitty gritty with Bryn here. So if these kind of conversations make you uncomfortable, just a little warning. We are also going to talk about drug use. If that upsets you, we want to be clear about that. We are also going to try to be as respectful as possible. These are all real people. These yeah. are not characters. So nothing but respect to the Hartman family. We always want to be respectful when talking about real people. Absolutely. In 1986, Phil would go on a blind date with model and aspiring actress Bryn Omdahl. That's a Norwegian or It is Scan- a very Norwegian name. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Bryn was born Vicky Jo Omdahl in... Thief River Falls, Minnesota. Oh, yeah. I, you know your people, <laughs> let me tell you. And by the time she met Phil, she hadn't had an acting or modeling job in a while. The pair married in 1987, and Phil was elated. He had a tall blonde on his arm, and that made him feel like he made a baby. Hey, dude, me too. And Bryn's beautiful. She's she tall, is. she has beautiful eyes, like... She was a, a legitimate swimsuit model. So Brim was a beautiful, beautiful person. And even though she had had some issues with addiction in the past, Phil knew all about that. And that didn't make him nervous. He was like, we can make it work. Together, the couple had two children and Phil loved being a father. He cited fatherhood as another reason to leave SNL because yeah. that schedule was so, so hard in LA he could do he would work nine to five at news radio come home yeah and be there for his kids and he, that was really important to him I could see Phil Hartman being a fun dad oh, come on of course but before he left Bryn was a constant sight on the set of SNL she'd hang out in the writer's room and would pressure Phil to get her on the show however the closest she got was being a faceless blonde during Phil's section of the opening credits <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at that, but <laughs> been there, been, been there. The marriage had difficulties as Bryn was jealous and would frequently threaten other women in Phil's life. Both his ex-wife Lisa and Jan Hooks would receive threatening letters from Bryn, warning them to stay away from Phil. When Lisa confronted Phil about the letter, his only response was, yeah, I know, you should have seen the first draft. No, <laughs> Indicating that he knew all about these letters and didn't really seem to care. <laughs> oh my gosh, Phil Hartman. See, like, Phil is a layered person. 
It's very interesting to me. Yeah, that is wild. If my sp- spouse wrote you a letter threatening you to stay out of my life, I would not laugh. That's not that's not a laugh to me. <laughs> no, I'd be like, yo, I have a you lot okay? To say. So all this time, while Phil's career continues to rise, Bryn's has flatlined. Phil tried to get Bryn jobs, but she became more and more dependent on booze and drugs, entering rehab several times. It's said that she had a minor acting career as a waitress in the movie North starring Elijah Wood. I should have mentioned that. You're correct. Okay. I <laughs> Just a huge fan of the movie North. Not a lot of people are. Just what us same, Northers same, are. Same, same, and same. I'm okay. glad you brought it up. On multiple occasions, Phil had to remove their children from the household to stay with other people because Bryn would go into these drug-fueled rages. But also, Bryn would use her temper as a means to get attention. Like, mm. if they have a fight, at least he's talking to me. At least he's paying attention to me. He's not paying attention to the kids. He's not paying attention to the show. He's looking at me. Oh, this is really a toxic relationship. It is not good. Yeah. Not good. Also during this time, Phil Hartman was building a large collection of what he called his toys. This included, but was not limited to two sailboats, an airplane, several cars, including a Bentley. Wow. All of which Phil took great pleasure in using and maintaining. So between his time with his toys, his time working... His time as a dad, Phil didn't have much more to give Bryn, and Bryn needed more. So it looked like this relationship, like his others, was heading for divorce. On May 27th, 1998, Bryn visited the Italian restaurant Buca di Peppo. I love Buca di Peppo. <laughs> near the Hartman home in Encino, California, with writer, friend, producer, Christine Zander, who said Bryn seemed like she was in a good state of mind. Christine had known the couple since she and Phil had worked together in the writer's room at Saturday Night Live. At Buca de Peppo, both women had drinks. After returning home, Bryn had a quote-unquote heated argument with Phil, after which he went to bed. I also, based on what I've learned about Phil and what I seem to know about Bryn, I feel like Bryn came home, was drunk and mad, and she was like, you don't pay attention to me. And Phil's answer to that was to ignore her and go to bed. Yeah, probably. That is not helpful. Yeah. And I bet that's how he dealt with a lot of her fights, is he just shut her down. Because that's what Phil did, is he just cut you out. He just iced you out. In all the specials I've watched about this, they all mention this about Phil, where they're not, he's the victim in the story. And they're not blaming him, but they're not not blaming him. That's wild. They're all like, you know, Phil would do this. He would just ignore you. He would drive you crazy. And on the record, that is not a good enough reason to kill somebody. No, not at all. That's like, that not fills get... me with rage, kind of. Like, it, that was how they dealt with it. This was 1998. At this point, they had been together for 10 years. Wow. So, you've learned about me. Yeah. You know who I am. Yeah, very much so at this point. So, that frustrates me. Gosh. That's so, so upsetting. After this argument, Phil goes to bed. Bryn entered his bedroom sometime before 3 a.m. and shot Phil once between the eyes, once in the throat, and once in the chest Jesus. with a 38 caliber handgun as he slept. He was 49 years old. At that time, Bryn was taking Zoloft, 
which had been given to her by her child psychiatrist. Wait, what? (laughs) So her child's psychiatrist, the psychiatrist for one of her children. Gave an adult woman, not the patient. A person with 20 years of addiction problems gave her samples of Zoloft. This is wild. You gotta be. The family would go on to sue this doctor for wrongful death. They said, you got her all hyped up on pills and she made a bad decision. And I, there is some credence to that, in my opinion. Do you know how that trial... I do not. Okay. I believe it was settled out of court. So they were... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not saying one thing, another, whatever. So on top of this, we know she had been drinking and she had recently used cocaine. This is a toxic combination. Like, I think Bryn made choices that were unacceptable, in my opinion. After killing Phil, Bryn got in her car and drove to her friend Ron Douglas's house, where she confessed to the murder. But he didn't believe her. The pair drove back to the house in separate cars. During, While driving, she called another friend and confessed to the crime again. Wow, this is really interesting. Back at the house, Ron Douglas sees that Phil is indeed dead and calls 911. This is at 6.20 a.m. Police arrive and escort Ron Douglas and the Hartman's two children from the premises. By which time, Bryn has locked herself in the bedroom. Shortly afterward, there's a bang. They break in. Bryn has killed herself in the same bed as her, the bed she had shared with her husband, whom she had shot. This is awful. I have so many questions. How was she not detained? How was she not like... I think we're seeing a lot of rich white privilege here. So first of all, we have to remember that Bryn is white and rich. She's also beautiful. So when she goes to her friend, she's like, oh, I killed Phil. And they're like, girl, you're so crazy. (laughs) Let's go back to the house. Before the cops get there, we're like four hours. Phil has been dead. That's wild. She shot him three times. So there's three gunshots. None of the neighbors call the police. Yeah, that's even crazy. Or... She goes, she confesses to her friend. Her friend laughs at her, says it's not her. She calls two more people. She confesses. No, it's fine. The police come, and the police have the foresight to remove the friend, Ron Douglas, and, and the, the two children. children. But they let self-confess three times she has confessed to this murder. They let her back in the house. That is so wild. That's I don't know. I'm not a police officer, but that doesn't seem like... LAPD, man. Don't get me started. That's wild. I'm just like really confused by that. And I'm also just confused by like, I mean, I can't be say what I would be in the position if like you came up to me and you're like, hey, I killed somebody. I don't know if I'm gonna I would that is against your character. So I think I would believe you immediately if you told me something like that. Like I don't think that's a joking situation. You're like, hey, I killed such and such. I agree. However, just play devil's advocate, because I do agree with you, but to play the other side. This is the person she's been married to for 10 years. Phil and Bryn fight all the time. Yeah. How many times have you said about your prayer, oh, I could kill him? You know, you say it all the time. And they had a contentious relationship. It was well known. But then if she said, I actually killed him, it's I would It's the middle of the night and she says, I shot Phil three times. I would take that seriously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the least. Like, bitch, why are you at my house right now? So Phil Hartman's divorce attorney, Stephen Small, said in in a CNN article that 
Bryn had anger management problems, and that was well known and documented. He stated that the couple argued about her alcoholism, about her addiction to cocaine, and about the impending divorce. Each party was unhappy and accused the other of not allowing the divorce to proceed. So it just seems like this was a terrible time. Like, I can't imagine being in this house with one person who is totally emotionally checked out and another person that is hyped up and is over-emotional because of substances. Yeah. That just sounds like hell. That combination you said of all the things she had, not a good one. According to Phil Hartman's friend and colleague, John Lovitz, Bryn Hartman had been sober for 10 years until five months before the murder, when comedian Andy Dick introduced her back to cocaine. Wow. Andy Dick claims that he had had no knowledge of her condition before giving her cocaine. Uh, Okay. Hear me out. Yep. If she wanted to do coke, she did coke herself. One million percent, I agree. I'm sorry. As a person who struggled with, like... She sought that out. Right. And it wasn't like Andy Dick shoving it up her nose. Totally agree. And I am going to give some, I'm disputing this 10 years sober because I read multiple witness accounts of Bryn being on set at SNL and offering people Coke. Yeah. Cause that was like the environment. At SNL, of course. Right? And that's what the people said. They're like, this isn't us trashing Bryn. Like everyone was doing Coke at Saturday Night Live. Yeah. I mean, but there are late hours, staying up. You gotta of get course, shit yeah. of course. And it's the 80s in New York City and you're rich. Yeah. Come on. It's A plus B equals C, y'all. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so, and that's in 1991, 1992. So this is not, I have, I do not believe the statement that Brim was 10 years sober. I'm taking contention with that right away. Lovitz later said that he no longer blamed Dick for Hartman's murder. But in 2006, Lovitz claimed that Andy Dick had approached him at a restaurant and said, I put the Phil Hartman hex on you. You're next. What? Lovitz had him ejected from the restaurant. The following year, at the Laugh Factory Comedy Club in Los Angeles, Lovitz and Dick got in another argument where John Lovitz slammed Andy Dick's head into the bar. What? Okay, first of all, this is insanity. (laughs) John Lovitz is WWE slamming people's heads at the st- fucking Laugh Factory. So Polly Shore's mom is there. <laughs> and she's like coordinating things. And she's like, John Lovitz, Andy Dick, stop doing cocaine long enough for John Lovitz to beat the shit out of you Jeez. over giving Bryn Hartman coke and sort of causing Phil Hartman's murder. So like John Lovitz is blaming Andy Dick for Phil Hartman's death. In accordance with his wishes, Phil Hartman was cremated by the Forest Lawn Memorial Park and Mortuary in Glendale, California. And his ashes were scattered over Catalina Island's Emerald Bay, which is like his favorite place. He would love to sail his boat. Like Phil Hartman was happiest alone on his sailboat. Like that's Man, the fact. I get it. Like that was where he found peace. And I just think he kind of isolated himself. Yeah. And then once he had children, that was where he was giving all his love and attention to. So I see the conflict here. Like being in a relationship with somebody who is only giving all of his love and attention to the kids, that's hard. That would be hard. 
Never mind fucking cocaine. God damn it. Andy, <laughs> damn you, Andy Dick. On the day of Phil's death, rehearsals for The Simpsons were canceled, as well as that night's performance by the Groundlings. The season five premiere episode of News Radio, titled Bill Moves On, finds Hartman's character Bill McNeil has died of a heart attack. And the characters sort of reminisce on their time together. John Lovitz joined the show, uh, kind of taking over that role in the next episode. A special episode of Saturday Night Live commemorating Hartman's work aired June 13th, just like two weeks after his death in 1998. Rather than substituting another voice actor, the writers of The Simpsons retired Hartman's characters. Yeah, absolutely. That's His final appearance on the show is season 10 episode, Bart the Mother, and it's dedicated to him, as is his final film, Small Soldiers. Is it happenstance that I stopped watching The Simpsons in season 10? Wow. I didn't didn't know. I didn't think it was because of that, but maybe it's because of that. The murder of Phil Hartman was shocking, and everyone who had worked with the comedian felt a profound sense of loss. NBC executive Don Olmeyer stated that Hartman was blessed with a tremendous gift for creating characters that made people laugh. Everyone who had the pleasure of working with Phil knows that he was a man of tremendous warmth, a true professional, and a loyal friend. This is a really nice thing to say about somebody and their passing. Like, and I honestly believe that just based on yeah, like... Yeah, same. Steve Martin said that he was a deeply funny and very happy person. Matt Groening called him a master. Director Joe Dante said, he was one of those guys who was a dream to work with. I don't know anybody who didn't like him. Dan Snyerson of Entertainment Weekly concluded that Hartman was the last person you'd expect to read lurid headlines about in your morning paper. In 2007, Entertainment Weekly ranked Hartman as the 87th greatest television icon of all time, and Maxson named him the top Saturday Night Live performer of all time. Wow, that's an honor. And damn right. Yes, I agree. (laughs) At the time of his death, Hartman was preparing to voice Zat Brannigan a character written specifically for him on Matt Groening's second animated series, Futurama. Man. Even though the role was specifically made for him, Hartman insisted on auditioning, and Groening said he nailed it. After Hartman's death, Billy West took over the role. Though executive producer David X. Cohen credits West with using his own take on the character, West later said that he purposely tweaked Zap's voice to play tribute to Hartman. Yeah, you absolutely hear... 100 million percent i honestly for a second thought that he maybe had recorded a little bit of it right oh man that's so upsetting it's so sad like that would have been so funny yeah heartbreaking phil hartman i love you phil hartman was inducted into the canadian walk of fame on september 22nd 2012 with paul hartman accepting the award the award on behalf of his late brother hartman was also awarded the cineplex legends award In June 2013, it was announced that Hartman would receive a a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which was unveiled on August 26, 2014. Additionally, a special prize at the Canadian Comedy Awards was named for Hartman. In 2015, Rolling Stone ranked Hartman as one of the top 10 greatest Saturday Night Live cast members throughout throughout the show's 
40 year history god that's i can't believe it's been on for 40 years yeah that's kind of prolific (laughs) Uh, they ranked him seventh out of 141 members wow that's a pretty solid top 10 what am i talking about as a kid i didn't really start watching saturday night live until sandler and farley came in so while I saw Phil Hartman, my kid brain had no idea that it was Troy McClure. <laughs> As we've mentioned in the past, my house was a Simpsons house. And so that's where I met Phil Hartman. Yeah. As a teenager, I would watch old episodes of Saturday Night Live on E! Entertainment Television. Oh, they did do that. And that's where I saw most of Phil Hartman's Saturday Night Live. Like, that's where I saw Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. That's where I saw his wonderful Frank Sinatra impression. And I loved it because Phil was not afraid to lampoon old blue eyes. And I am <laughs> a sucker for a good lampooning, especially for a notorious asshole like Frank fucking Sinatra. As I've said, there are a ton of like Dateline 2020 true crime stuff about Phil and about this case. And they all feature people that were close to Phil. They all describe him as a nice and funny person but also as a person who had a wall around themselves. And while no one blames him, all of these specials point that out, that being in a relationship with Phil was hard, that he made you feel like you were his everything, and then he'd ice you out. Yeah, that's, yeah, that would be tough. While that is a difficult personality trait, I do not think that is cause for murder. No. I feel like if... I feel like there is some like reverse misogyny going on with this when we hear about this case. Because Bryn was beautiful and a lady, everyone is so soft on their stance on her. Where if it were reversed, and if Bryn were Brian and Phil was Paula, they would be much more pointed in their tone when talking about the murderer. Phil was asleep in his bed And she shot him three times. Yeah, that's... That is brutal and unacceptable. Yeah, I mean... It is not like... They they didn't get in a car accident. There wasn't an accident. She got the gun. She walked into the room and she shot him. That is deliberate and intent. And we're nice to her because she's pretty. Something that was interesting about the death of Bill Hartman also is that after he passed away... Everybody in Hollywood came forward and they're like, oh, I have a Phil Hartman story. Oh, I have a Phil Hartman story. My favorite is fucking uh, Steve. Is that his name? Steve Gutenberg? Yeah. He, of all people, was like, I knew them very well. He did not know them. He's like, <laughs> I knew them very well. And I never would have thought about it. I'm like, Mr. Gutenberg, please sit the fuck down. <laughs> <laughs> have a Coke and a smile and shut the fuck up. Nobody asked you, sir. <laughs> um, Phil Hartman for me... So, like, it's just wild because there's a lot of things, like, I did not know at all. Sure. Like you said, that P.B. Yeah, Hermes he stuff a... blew my mind. Des- designing album covers for fucking Poco and shit. Like, this was man, he had a thousand careers in, like, one lifetime. It's true. And he's just, like, super talented, just kind. It's upsetting that he left us too soon. Like, Phil Hartman, always going to be a fan of yours. Thank you so much for all your work. Definitely. <laughs> Thank y'all for tuning in. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or embarrassing confessions, send us an email at thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. Again, that's thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thewaybackrecappod. If you'd like to support the show and or listen to bonus content, exclusive episodes, visit our Patreon page. Our original cover art is by Laura Strobish. Remember, wherever you listen to podcasts, follow or subscribe to The Wayback Recap. 
If you enjoyed yourself, please rate and review the show. But if that's too much, we totally get it. Tell a friend. Preferably a responsible friend, like my Lyft driver last week, who asked what I was doing this weekend, and then proceeded to subscribe to my podcast. That is... Friendship. That's what I'm looking for here, folks. Thank you for that. (laughs) And join us next time. I'm Brandon. And I'm Patricia. And on behalf of the Way Back Recap, take take care care of each other, y'all.